Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to episode 57 of the Women's Running Podcast. I'm Esther Newman, editor of Women's Running, and in this episode I speak to Sue Anstis. Sue is one of the most passionate champions of women's sport I think I've ever spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot of women who are passionate about it. As a founding trustee of the Women's Sport Trust, co-founder of the Women's Sport Collective and CEO of Fearless Women, her overarching ambition is to forge forward in terms of equality in sport, whether that be representation in the actual sports themselves or through representation in the media. As host of the Game Changers podcast, she talks to trailblazing women in sport and she talks to me here about what a brilliant medium this is and I have to agree. She also talks to me about her brand new book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. Launched in September, this is a book we all need on our shelves in which Sue investigates why women have been excluded from the world of sport for centuries and why we are now witnessing positive change as never before. It's a celebratory book as much as a rallying cry and is testament to Sue's positivity and passion for all women's sport, including running. She also talks to me here about the sport that she loves to do, including her newfound passion for open water swimming. She's a total inspiration and a complete force of nature. By the end of our conversation, I had one of those, oh my God, women are amazing moments. Be inspired. Podcast listeners can claim the best discount we have for membership to Women's Running, which is 35% off. That's less than two ninety-five a month. And for that, you get our brilliant magazine and you also get loads of money off the sorts of stuff you love. Just go to shop.womensrunning.co.uk and enter WRPod at the checkout for your discount. Happy running. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It's really lovely to see your face after doing some frantic Googling and <laughs> <laughs> discovering so much about you, which I never knew in the first place. Um, and I do, I really want to talk to you about your book. Um, but I guess um, the first thing I want to know really about you is you and sport, because I know that that is an interesting story. So, um, yeah, can you can you tell me about you, about your start in sport? Certainly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
always been quite a sporty woman, girl. As a child, I played sports, so I swam and I ran and um, I played, I guess, as many would do at school, school sports. Um, and then I went on to study at Loughborough. So I studied sports science and English at Loughborough University. I wanted to be a PE teacher. That was my ambition at the time of going there. Uh, I just loved everything about sports and sports participation, really. Um, so in terms of activity, that those were my kind of early... I played volleyball, actually, at Loughborough, discovered volleyball. Uh, and I guess all that time I've run and I've always uh, run either on the athletics track or running and training. I did a marathon way back when after my first child was born. In Which um, marathon was that? I did London, actually. In, yeah. uh, when was she born? 2000. So 2001, I did that. I, I won't be doing another one, but it was good to tick off the box and do. <laughs> uh, and then I found triathlon really late. So I came um, to triathlon in my 40s. So I, I trained and did some GB, age group GB stuff, which was fantastic. So, yes, I've kind of been had a bit of a, a competitive, enjoying it, but now much more open water swimming and just enjoying being with others and probably a bit more. No, I'm old and sedentary. I'm sure I'll find something to fire me up to compete again in the future. <laughs> but uh, probably gone through that cycle really. Do you? Um, w- would you do another triathlon? Do you think? I th- I probably will do. I kind of think I won't because I did it for three years and it is so intense in terms of the training and the full on ness, as you well know. But in, in terms of the commitment of it, um, and I and interestingly, I found I got a bit fearful towards the end of doing. It. I did probably three years, probably every weekend, either trying to qualify for something or competing or what have you. And I got fearful on the hills and on the on taking bends fast on cycling. So I mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to see that change in myself almost of, uh, I'm not sure if that was around age or if something happened, but I, I find myself a bit more fearful on that side. So I think I need to overcome that. And I had thought about doing a half Ironman or Ironman or something where it isn't so intense. That I don't need to, I did a lot of sprint triathlon and Olympic distance. And I think there that anxiety around the speed of transition and every second counts and the intensity of it so perhaps something that was longer and slower might be more appealing yeah I don't feel um yeah that fear almost yeah yeah fair enough and you've I mean you've mentioned um swimming I, I know you like open water swimming um oh my god the people that like open water swimming it's like a religion isn't it <laughs> it is I know I didn't think I would end up being one of those people but I clearly have been a bit of an evangelist for it but it is the most extraordinary uh, experience so yeah I, I think through triathlon I came to it I saw some video recently of me when I first went into the lake at Bray when I was doing my first it's probably 2012 2013 and loads mm. of squeals and screams in my wetsuit thinking it was really cold when it was probably about 15 degrees or something and then now last three years we've swum through the whole of winter you know without wetsuits at all or gloves or boots you know just in our costumes and just the joy of going into the cold water and the feeling exhilaration it gives after and yeah I absolutely love it and it's interesting now because obviously it's fairly warm and the lake's lovely but it doesn't really appeal to me in the way the cold does in the winter so that's been interesting to realize I do still enjoy swimming but I'd love the cold cold side of it. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, yeah. From from my part, that seems like a completely alien concept because I hate the cold. But I've seen photographs of friends on Facebook who have been kind of cracking ice with with kind yeah. of bats and stuff so that they can go for a swim in freezing conditions. So you you you, you much prefer it colder than warmer? Yeah, I think <gasps> so. But the more I've I looked into it and researched and so on, I think it is so true. Is that once you overcome that, it's like all things in life, isn't it? Overcoming that fear. So every time you go in, 
you, you always have that anxiety and that fearfulness of going in. And obviously your body naturally doesn't want to go into something that's so cold. So every time you do overcome that, there is that exhilaration of knowing that you've done it. And that's the, what you get the buzz from, I think. And I'm and without doubt, that's helped me in life to overcome other things that I might be wary of. Knowing I can go in swimming cold water has definitely helped me in other areas too. So I think it's so, so powerful. And, it's, and I think there's a reason it's women of a certain age that are flocking. You know, and obviously it's become very popular, but I think there's a reason that it is uh, women moving on from other competitive sports, et cetera, that are coming to it. Because it just gives you confidence in so many other areas of your life too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, um, uh, yeah, I must give it a go, I guess, sometime. But do you, and do you swim, you, you talked about a lake. Do you swim in the sea as well? I have done some sea swimming. I'm not close to the sea. So we're, I said, oh, I might move close to the sea in the future just to do sea swimming. So <laughs> I'm more of a lake and river because I'm in Berkshire and there's lakes and rivers and I'm not so close. But um, my brother's down in, in Sussex in Brighton. So when I go down, I will swim in the sea. But um, probably not as much of a sea swimmer as I am. Kind of lakes, flat, yeah. flat water, I think, for me, really. Yeah, yeah. That, no, that sounds more my, like my comfort zone. Um, I've been I've been following you on Twitter and I've um, been watching you get um, extremely excited along with the rest <laughs> of us about the Olympics, um, but not just the Olympics. I mean, you know, you, you've been really excited about Wimbledon, about the Euros, about netball. Um, like, do you have a favourite sport or competition? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I have come to women's rugby in the last five, ten years or so. Um, so if I had to sit and choose something to go down, I'm going to do actually also love athletics. I love so much. But I think um, day to day or week to week, it's probably women's rugby that I follow most of yeah. it. I would go out of my way to go and find it and watch it and so on. And that's interesting because when I was at university, and growing, I, didn't, I wasn't really a fan of women's rugby. And I think uh, so we'll come on to explore uh, in terms of the book and the femininity myth of what's right and wrong for females. I think I had that myself in feeling I didn't really like seeing women tackling other women to the ground and that physicality of it, which now having immersed myself in the sport and my daughters have played, et cetera, and I've worked more with them, just seeing, I just think it's extraordinary. And I love, love watching rugby, but I've always loved men's rugby. So I think probably that's part of the loving that too but I love the net I mean the net has been amazing the Vitality Super League's been incredible this season to see you know every, all the games shown live and I, so I am a big fan of but again as you say through the, through the Olympic Games I've loved watching triathlon and the swimming and the you know so 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 much sport just a bit of a passionate fan of all women's sport really. So I mean like this massive passion for pretty much every single sport um, it, it, was that fostered in you as a kid? Is that something that you remember having as a small child? Yeah, well, my dad was um, a PT instructor in the Metropolitan Police, actually. So he was really into sports and, and fitness. I remember my mum saying to him, they're not your recruits, you know, the children. I've got three brothers, but like, <laughs> he'd come home and treat us like we were uh, the cadets or recruits at Hendon. Um, so sport was always on television in our house, always, like during every meal, every whatever, it was always on television. And we were just all encouraged to play sport. And I, there was never an issue. I've got a twin brother as well, actually, but we both play sport and it was never as if his sport was any more important or less so than mine. So I think, um, I didn't agree with lots of my dad's attitudes. I think you might imagine in someone in the Met Police all those years ago. Uh, <laughs> but I did. But in terms of equality and giving me opportunity, I think uh, it, he was very fair. He saw women's sport as sport, so he was probably quite progressive in that way. Really, uh, and my mum played tennis, and you know, so we're a very active family. So I think from that side, um, 
It was, and I, and I know my PE teacher, you know, and on the Game Changers podcast, I always ask people who inspired you, and often it's PE teachers. And for me, it was PE te- You know, there were some amazing PE teachers at both my primary school, the teacher that took me swimming and got me swimming, Miss Turney, uh, and then at my secondary school, Miss Bamba and others. So I just remember how important they were in kind of feeding my interest in sport but that's mm-hmm. a really interesting question I've never really been asked I'm gonna where it came from <laughs> uh, but I think it was it just felt very natural in my house we didn't play musical instruments I danced a little bit I hated ballet I remember saying I don't want to go anymore and my brother saying well, just tell mum I don't think she wants to drag you there each week too so I think um it was just normalized that sport was part of our lives really yeah oh that's really interesting so um yeah let um talk to me about the Olympics like what what were your kind of standout? Because we, the Olympics, while we're recording this, has just finished, really. So, what were the what were the best? What were the highlights for you? Yeah, so ma- so many actually. I love. I surprisingly loved the urban sport. So the amazing BMX. I mean, everybody you know, amazing seen that. And yeah. so Charlotte <laughs> Worthington on that second run, and then, and I loved. Um, uh, Emily Carpenter, the powerlifting, 87 kg <gasps> powerlifting. So her with yeah. the beautiful red and blue hair. And so I guess sports that we perhaps we haven't seen as much of before. And then hearing from women who have really come through. And I guess in lots of those sports, perhaps haven't been on the funding path that we've traditionally expected and seen. So that was yeah. really exciting. I love the team relays. I love the mixed relays, the mixed triathlon relay, uh, the swim relay. So that I think that's been really enlightening and just a joy uh, to watch those two, uh, and then some of the it's funny is that some of the bronze medals. So um, Holly Bradshaw in the pole vault, uh, people that have worked so hard to get to those places, and the women's hockey bronze. So I, I, that's been lovely to see. That I think sometimes mm. we talk so much about gold, don't we? And, and almost the second place or silver medals, you know, just not winning gold. But actually, those people that recognise uh, or we recognise how important a bronze or even just qualifying or getting to a final can be too so yeah mm-hmm. so so many moments I did watch that amazing BBC montage yesterday that's where I got very emotional <laughs> and you forget even a couple of weeks ago that one they shared the high jump gold the men's high jump gold and they, you know all those yeah. things you think well, it was only two weeks ago and I've already forgotten these amazing Mallory um in the K- the C1 canoe, kayak, a slalom canoe, where they didn't even let women do it to this until this games because it was, they thought it'd be too tough for them. You know, and then there's women coming out and being amazing at it. So those are the kind of things I find are, are superbly inspiring. Yeah, it was it definitely inspiring. I did have quite a lot of weepy moments. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit wet like that. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I wanted to talk to you about the um, about Women's Sport Trust because you're a founding member of that. Can you can you tell me about what that is and what it does and what you yes, do? Yes, yeah, certainly. So it was started actually on the on the back really of, of 2012. So that was the catalyst for it. And the founders, uh, Joe Bostock and Tammy Parler, because had seen 2012 and, and women having massive profile in terms of both on the stage of the, of the Olympic Games, but also within media and all that coverage. And then it just falling away after London and us not seeing it re- repeated in September, October, November. So they initiated this charity and the goal really is to drive uh, visibility for women's sports. So whether it's role models or getting more media coverage and also the viability of women's sports so to bring in more funding, uh, more corporate funding and, and backing and tell the story of women's sport isn't just about kind of worthy, let's sponsor it and back it for a CSR call, but because it really does 
add huge value and you'll get a great return on investment and, and bringing more sponsors. So the Women's Sport Trust does a lot of work behind the scenes, sort of collaborating and bringing parties together to open discussion and, and to create change. And yeah, it's been since 10 years next year. It's extraordinary. But for a small charity, you know, it's, it has very little funding, has uh, a couple of staff that are kind of part-time that support it. The trustees do a huge amount too, but they've just achieved so much uh, when you think about uh, yeah, w- w- what they have available to them, had a huge impact. What have been the standout achievements since it was founded? Uh, many. So we, we had we had awards for a while. We had the Game Chain, uh, Chain Be a Game Changer Awards, which uh, kind of recognised and celebrated those that were making a real difference in women's sport. We ran those for a few years, and then we've we've kind of moved on and shifted. So the two sort of big areas at the moment. One is the Unlocked campaign, which takes young female athletes, uh, elite athletes, and helps them to find their voice and cause and to raise their profile, teams them up with activators, so people in the world of sport and business and media. Um, and that's now in its second year, and that's been hugely successful. And I learned actually five of the, the young women that were on the first cohort are now on boards or on sports boards, but uh, just the stories of what they've done and achieved. So there's some amazing names there. So that's that's kind of growing. And how do we then kind of feed that out and keep that growing? Um, and then the Women's Sport Trust doing more research and partnering to tell that story around women's sports. So we've done some research recently with two circles around visibility and what other bodies can be doing to increase the visibility of women's sport is it is a kind of key area but again that kind of bringing together the sector um to talk and share and learn from each other so i think that's the, that's the real role we're having uh is, is sparking that conversation and, and creating change what what do you think is like what are the, the big things that need to change in order to increase uh, visibility there's, there's lots. So the ambition report, which the Women's Sport Trust published earlier this year, does highlight is it's not, I guess, in my head, historically, we thought we just need more free to air television. It needs to be on the BBC. It needs to be in newspapers. But actually, everybody needs to play their part. So the governing bodies and the organisations need to be better at sharing that content, whether that's through press releases about their athletes or it's pushing them through social media, making them available. Uh, the kind of branding, you know, sponsorship brands need to fund more women's sport and to recognise the amazing opportunity that women's sport has perhaps differently to men's sport in terms of it being seen as more progressive and more family friendly and reaching a, a different younger audience. Um, so there's, there's different roles for different organisations and entities to play within that. And obviously the media does play a huge part of um Get offering that opportunity but there are you know Sky's done an amazing job over the last you know 10-15 years with cricket so if you look at the, all they've done in, in cricket and net, and also with netball and, uh, and now with football coming on too so there are those commercial uh, sporting platform broadcasters but as well as the free tier air and I think we're seeing it needs to be a bit of both uh, that the audiences that you pick up through having as we have talked about with the Olympics you know those people that would never normally tune in to see women's rugby but might have seen rugby sevens at the Olympics and then might come across to kind of find it in the future uh, when it's played week to week. So, um, yeah, it's all those kind of different bodies coming together, really, to to see the opportunities that, that lie. You also set up um, something called Fearless Women. How does that tie into that? What, what does what does that do? Yeah, so Fearless Women is is my agency that kind of is an umbrella really for all the work that I'm doing in this space. So uh, within that sits the uh, Women's Sport Collective, which is a network for women working across sports. We've got nearly three and a half thousand uh, members there now. So that was, we set it up as a 
pro bono, just felt like the right thing to do. Uh, but Sky Sports now back sort of cover our costs to run that. So it's not for profit. Um, and then also the Game Changers podcast, which we're now just finished series eight of the Game Changers featuring trailblazing women in sport. Um, and then obviously the work that I do, some consultancy for people around the world, you know, the area of women's sport, really. So all of that sits within Fearless Women with a bit of a, a drive, really, to um, change and, and progress women's sport. So that's where the agency sits. And then the work I do on the Women's Sport Trust, and I sit on a number of other boards that's, so I guess, outside that or within that. But that's almost my voluntary work that I do alongside that. You're pretty busy. I haven't even got to the end of the things that you do yet. Um, <laughs> because I did want to also talk to you about the podcast because we both podcast and your podcast is brilliant. I l- absolutely love it. Oh, who's, thank been you. Your, um, who's been your favourites? Who, who, oh, so like, many like, people on that. It's like having children. I, have, I am asked that and I'm always really wary oh. of calling out any favourites because I might offend those that I, <laughs> I don't mention. And they're all so different. And often it's all, it's almost the women. Like I get a bit of starstruck talking to Jess Ennis Hill or Judy Murray mm. or... But actually, sometimes it's the women that we don't know before I talk to them that are the most fascinating. So uh, I don't know what what you've listened to, but I guess people, women within Sport for Development, so Moya Dodd and Mary Harvey and those that have an amazing story to tell. And I learned stuff that I didn't otherwise know. I think with some of the athletes, you kind of know their story and you find out more and it is Mm. really inspiring. But it's I love learning. So I think it's those that I learn more from. And then women like like Rose Riley, who played uh, football in Scotland, an amazing player that went to play in Italy and France and like properly entertaining, really moving. So so sometimes those almost, I, I didn't really know of Rose until I kind of came across her and then interviewed her for the podcast and so some of those. And then it's lovely. So people like in the first series, actually, Kate Richardson Walsh is still the most pop, most downloaded of all the series ever. Hers is still the most popular. Uh, and that's just really moving. I look, and I've listened back to that recently to see, has it, has it aged over two years? But actually, it's still a, a fantastic, moving, engaging story of, of her career path and ups and downs and so on too. So, yeah, lots of favourites in, in different ways, really. But, yeah, lots to take from them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree because that, that sort of resonates so so much with me and this podcast in that like you kind of you can introduce people that um, that the audience have, haven't heard of or, or may not have heard of and it's so lovely because you've got that audience there sort of wet, ready and waiting basically and then you can feed in all these people these these amazing stories yeah um, and yeah I, I'd agree with you that you know some of my favorite ones that, that I've done have been not not the big names it's been the kind of the smaller people basically yeah, but, um, yeah. What, what do you like about podcasting what's good what's why is it good it's just lovely. I mean, I think I'm so blessed just to have a chance to go and talk to people about amazing people about their lives and their careers and ups and downs. And I, th- I think um, just that intimacy of I, I think I just like people. I like people and I like talking to people. So, you know, if I can do that and, and create a product that engages and uh, helps others in, you know, inspire to change, uh, then that's a really positive thing. So that's been, I think that's just been a great part of that process. I mm-hmm. think I've realized in the last few years, I like making stuff. I like, I didn't realize quite how much I like uh, the creativity. <laughs> I got into crochet last year, crocheted a lot of <laughs> hats at Christmas. <laughs> but I think there is that whole m- m- tangibly making and creating something. And I think I didn't realize the podcast how much I love that making a product and then sharing it with others and um as I say yeah and seeing the ch- the feedback and the change or people coming back to you and saying oh it made me realize I could do x y and z that's hugely hugely powerful so yeah mm-hmm. it's a great medium have you got any um exciting guests coming up well we're just about we're very close to announce 
We've got a new partner for uh, the whole year moving forward. I, should, I can't say wow. it is yet because it's not signed off yet, but yeah. that will be really exciting. And then, so I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself in terms of guests and things, but I mean, I want all those amazing women that are at the, the Olympics. I've yeah. talked to Emily Carpenter and Charlotte Worthington, and there are so many. I could just do an Olympic. And, and then obviously this is before the Paris is even coming up. Yeah. Uh, in a yeah. couple of weeks' time too. So, yeah, so I've got lots in mind. Um and yeah, just waiting to kind of announce that in the weeks ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, very exciting. So watch your space, really. So yeah. um, let's finally, let's, uh, I don't mean finally, but eventually, finally get on to <laughs> your book because you've, um, you've just written, just published a book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport, which is kind of basically what you've just been talking about, <laughs> which is lovely. What, what made you want to write it? I think I probably always wanted to write a book from, I studied English actually, English and, and a PE at Loughborough. Uh, so I think, right, I've always loved writing and, I, and I've and i realised that I love the whole gathering content from different places and collating and pulling together to to create one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think probably from a long time I had a desire to write a book. And then I, and then the last few years, I, my initial thought was it that it would be around the game changes. I would take all the amazing stories of those game changes and bring those together in a book. That was my initial ambition for it. And as I pulled it together, it kind of changed and morphed and shaped into sort of following my journey to understand why women's sport is where it is. Uh, and then to celebrate those game changes too, that is definitely a component of it, uh, but a bit more of a sort of manifesto and, and practical guidance on what more we can all do, some of the things we've just discussed uh, moving forward too. So that's how, kind of how it evolved, really. How, what was the process of writing? Did you find it an easy book to write? I did, more so than I thought. Uh, it was crowdfunded. So the, so the first process was crowdfunding, and that was hard, hard, fairly hard work. And then mm. I kind of got the money all in place, and it's like, oh, now I need to write the book, which I had in my head. So I, so I think that first few weeks was quite daunting, of from zero to eighty thousand words. Uh, but actually, advice for anybody writing a book, it, uh, but it was I almost did that of a mind map of of what the book would contain, the chapters that it would contain, what each chapter would contain, just built out from there. And then I had a bit of a structured plan that that came from those things. So yeah, I think I did. I Google that how to write a book. Um, but actually, there's almost so what was so overwhelming is there's so much that you could put in, and I guess that's the same for anybody mm-hmm. writing a, a a nonfiction book is. Uh, what do you leave out? And that is, that is the worry almost of what you leave out. And actually they got towards the end of writing it and stuff, I had included all this stuff and things kept changing and moving and developing. So, uh, so that was interesting. It's like how, how much the publishers would let me keep saying, can I just add a little bit more about Rachel Blackmore at the Grand National or you know something else has happened? I want to just squeeze that into the book too, because obviously things are still evolving. And so if there was so much information, does that mean that there's going to be a follow-up? There may be, yes. I did really enjoy writing it, actually. <laughs> uh, I did really enjoy writing it. And they have talked about a paperback. So it's like, oh, do I, how much more can I add in if, in, a, in a paperback in the future? Yeah, but I would like to write. And it may not be on the, exactly the same topic or whatever, but I would definitely like to write another book. I really, really enjoyed the process of creating it. So like um, in talking about the kind of the rise of women's sport, obviously it's risen from sort of quite a, a lowly background, you know, like, what what was preventing it? And I know I could answer some of this myself, but I I want to know from you. Like, what, <laughs> what was preventing women's sport from being so widely kind of watched and kind of accepted? And and are we equal yet? 
Yeah, no, we're not equal. I think that's a bit that I wanted to do with the book was to investigate what did prevent us in the first place. And looking right back, it is that Victorian myth, the frailty myth that we as women uh, would lose our fertility, we wouldn't have the energy, our uteruses would fall out, you know, all these abhorrent things that might happen to us if we took part in physical activity. And Mm. that's what stopped women or men stopped women from taking part in sport and competing, you know, at the time that men were doing more on organised sport was evolving in the late 18th century women weren't allowed to take part in sports so that and I guess that's a bit was a bit of a wake-up call for me was both to see how women were stopped and held back for so long but also how so many of those you know beliefs that we know not to be true but still persist today so the areas around femininity and women's sport and you know competing in dresses or the the gymnasts or you know in terms of the outfits that women wear and and how we judge women and how our the actual sports themselves in many cases different but how much of that stems from this idea that we I mentioned there didn't I Mallory Frank Mallory Franklin in the C1's canoe slalom only included this year in 2021 because women weren't strong enough to handle the boats you know so that's one example and there are myriads of examples of where women have been excluded um and because of that belief around it wasn't appropriate for women it wasn't suitable for women or, or because they wouldn't be strong enough it would damage them so um that's a shocking bit i think that it still exists today within society and in, in, in all of us, and I mentioned earlier, like the women's rugby, that's probably a bit of my own historically thinking, oh, that doesn't feel right for women. But why should women not be strong and powerful and celebrate um, their fearlessness in the way that men do? That's just a societal piece that's been put upon us. So I guess that's that's the bit that I have found most fascinating. And, and that as we see change now and we celebrate these amazing women athletes, I hope that it is changing. So we're not there yet, but I genuinely feel we're at a point when so many different things are coming together at the same time in terms of media coverage and funding and changing of board structures and more female coaches and a ex- younger audience that wants to see progressive change in, in brands and in, in sports that I think we are now finally beginning to see change that we would we yeah. like. I, I would so like to think so. It's kind of, it, it, you know, along with the example that you gave, it's, it was so shocking this year, wasn't it, about the, the beach volleyball outfits, oh, the, the gymnasts. Yeah. I, I just, and, and I, you know, I, I just couldn't understand it. I just thought, surely, surely not. <laughs> surely no, this can't be yeah. a thing. Um, and but- athletes being so track and field athletes being sent by the sponsors of the Olympic Games, little bikini bottoms and without any question of, are you happy to compete in that outfit? That So that, you know, I had a conversation with someone about that just yesterday. Uh, but actually, why is that right? That they're, they're sending women the X and the men Y at an Olympic stage for Team GB without ever really talking to the athletes and, and understanding what it is they want to compete in and, and mm. to be wearing. So, yeah, I do feel... Uh, we feel like we've massively moved on and we're in 2021, but actually so much of it is hideously. And you mentioned that beach handball, the beach handball team, the Norwegian team. When mm. you actually see the picture of the, t- the women, I don't know if you saw that there's a picture of the team together. So the yeah. men are kneeling and the women are kneeling next to them. I mean, it's just like a joke. You think, how can that possibly be a thing? And then they're fined for wearing shorts. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I kind of feel like we've made massive bounds and then you look at some stuff and think we're almost going slightly backwards or it's not moving fast enough to, yeah. but um, yeah, I, I live in a positive 
I have a very glass half full attitude. I think you can get a bit down by where it is, but I do feel we're moving in the right direction. And things like the FAWSL on BBC and Sky this September, it's mm. and, the, and the success of the 100 this summer, it's the domestic women's game. So as we see more domestic sport on a week-to-week basis, we've always had that amazing coverage for the Olympics and the global women's, you know, the FA, um, the FIFA Women's um, World Cup in 2019. So mm. we, the big peaks we see in coverage happen around those global events what we need to see is the week-to-week coverage of sports generally that's the bit that will make the shift and I think the success of the 100 this summer and the big numbers we're seeing watching women's cricket and then with the Super League football coming in September I think that's why I feel really excited about the future. So uh, who have been like over the past say over the past 20 years who have been like the most important game changers as far as you're concerned that have shifted the kind of view of women's sport? That's a good question. I have a little think around that. I guess <laughs> there, are, there are so many in different ways. And we do talk a lot around the, uh, the Billie Jean Kings. That's more than 20 years ago, isn't it? And in terms of the, the shifting and standing up in women's tennis and moving that. So, so she's often cited as an example. I think a lot of it is the athletes, is the bravery of those athletes, of Serena, of Naomi Osaka, people, women that are now standing up. And sometimes it has been, and those three I've cited are all tennis. It's mm. been some of those women from those sports where there is funding and they have a profile and they've been fairly equal to the men. And um, you know, if you look at the top 20, whatever, the wealthiest athletes, it's often the tennis players that make it into those numbers. But then again, if you look at the US women's soccer team and Megan Rapinoe and, uh, you know, the last three or four years, the shift mm. that they're making in calling stuff out and uh, and social media enables that now. So women can, you know, they've got this massive audience that they can go to directly. So you think about Simone Biles with nearly 7 million followers on Instagram. She doesn't need to go through the media to talk to an audience now she can talk directly to. So yeah. I think um, kind of some of those women that have a big following, those probably have been the game changers because they can directly go and talk to uh, that audience and, and and bring people along with them on that journey. Yeah, yeah. What what, what about you? For, for you, what, what have, I mean, this is a question that you alluded to earlier on, like who have been your heroes? Yeah, I, I think because I love so much sport and I love so many different people doing different things in different ways, it's mm. it's really hard. And I don't, I'm just not answering your question. I do <laughs> find it hard to think of, you know, I look back to athletics when I was, you know, there wasn't so much women's sport on television. So Sally Gunnell and Denise Lewis and, you know, watching those amazing women in the 80s doing mm. extraordinary things. Uh, so I guess for me, that had a huge impact. But actually, more recently, so in some of the women's coaches, you know, Mel, Marshall coaching Adam Peaty and some of the, you know, Tracy Never Lovers, but netball coaches. And so some of the women behind the scenes, I think they can be just as inspiring. Or for me, definitely making me think, oh, you could they can go and achieve how hard they fought to get to where they are mm. to be in that position and then going and making change too. And then some of the women that are working within organizations. So women like Kelly Simmons at the FA or Giselle May, the coach at Wasps, performance director, who have who have come in and are making change from within sport mm-hmm. too. So I think sometimes I'm I'm not I'm not in awe of athletes, but I'm almost more in all of those women that have worked so hard I'm going to come off this podcast now and think of oh I should have mentioned uh, but those are the kind of women that I think oh yeah that's amazing kind of what they're doing and they've kind of fought so hard probably in an environment where it wasn't very female friendly or they didn't have the opportunities but they fought really hard for women that follow them too so I think those are often the women that I find really inspiring 
Yeah, I, I did wonder that. I was when I was just um looking at so I was just um looking at something that's going in, in our magazine today and it was talking about the numbers of female to male Olympians and how you know we had more females than males this year and that was amazing. And I just thought about what was going on behind the scenes in terms of um uh, you know what what is the proportion when it gets to coaches when it comes to um uh, yeah uh, people in the media and things yeah. like that because I remember speaking to Gabby Logan um about six seven months ago and she was talking about her first gigs when she first started um you know presenting football matches and things like that and she was clearly completely on her own and I yeah I wonder there how we can achieve more equity behind the scenes with that and that's yeah and coaching is such a good point so I think it's the site it was like 10 or 11 percent of female uh coaches from team gb across olympics and paralympics there's 10 to 15 percent but but it's nowhere near 50 percent, and it hasn't changed over the years too so i think absolutely that's a lot of the work and where my passion lies too is about the athletes on the field and representation and uh, funding but it's as much about how do we change the whole infrastructure and there's been a lot of talk in the past for the almost like we need to fix the women we need to make them more confident and give them the skills and, do, and actually no we don't we need to fix the system and change the recruitment process and change the way in which people need to operate as elite coaches is one example but being away from home 300 nights a year if you've got a family or you know so all those considerations too and you know men have families too but women generally are more of the taking care of family and, and older parents etc mm-hmm. so um so I think that I completely, completely agree. It's that it's how we change the whole of that infrastructure. And then having those women as more senior coaches will then impact women and girls. You know, we talk a lot, don't we, in terms of uh, there hasn't been that discussion around menstruation and periods and women's bodies. And, and actually, how easy is it for a young female athlete in any sport to go and talk to her middle-aged white coach around how her periods are affecting her performance not that easy and it's changed mm. you know hopefully it's changing moving forward but actually having women coaching women and being there for women that will make you know make a big difference so um but I think sometimes there's that danger that we position women female coaches or oh, they're good for coaching women and girls and they're good for coaching younger athletes because they're more compassionate whatever I don't absolutely don't want to perpetuate that uh, myth as it were I think women can be amazing coaches you look at someone like Emma Hayes at Chelsea women can be amazing coaches for for men and and for women um, but I think getting the system right to enable more of them to progress through uh, to those levels is something that and UK Sport are doing a good, really good job on that. They're openly talking about it and they've got programs in place to make those changes now. So again, when I said earlier about all those things shifting, that's another thing that I think is now happening and we're talking about, uh, it's just one component. And similarly, whether it's broadcast or journalism and women behind the scenes in all those sports science areas too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, and, and actually that, that this comes back quite neatly to to your book as well, because from my perspective, it it's about, increasing the visibility of voices that you that I know from just the running perspective that you don't get enough books about running written by women and you certainly not like you 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 get stories you get memoirs but you don't necessarily get like full-on kind of coaching books fact books about how you can make your running better and um and hearing from more women that are writing books about sport about writing you know writing books about running and stuff I think is just is quite is heartening but it, 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 all it does is kind of make you think, 
but where have these women been? Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that, but that is so true, isn't it, around the coaching, around the positioning as an expert in this field and actually seeing more books in that space that will then make people have more confidence in women's capabilities because they completely are, mm-hmm. uh, but perhaps have been overlooked for those those next positions and promotions in the past too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why we need you to write more. So that <laughs> <laughs> I want that second book, like, quick shot, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so um, what, what are you looking forward to coming up in the next few months? Well, what, I mean, there's the Paralympics, obviously. So Yeah, absolutely. And, then, and I guess I should say on the book, it, but it hasn't, it's September the 2nd it launches. Oh, so it does I'm it. not sure Sorry. when the book's going out. No, no, it's all good. But that's the bit I'm looking forward to. So it's 20, yeah. my daughter reminded me last night, it's 21 days. So I'm looking forward to the build up and all that goes through the, uh, the publishing process. Uh, and then I guess it is the Paralympics. And although I've said, I'm, I've said on this podcast, I'm not a fan of football, uh, but I am really looking forward to the FAWSL because I think that could be properly uh, game changing, uh, for yeah. want of a better phrase, in terms of women's sport too. Uh, and then there's so, I mean, next year, in terms of women's rugby, for instance, I just saw a post this morning that next year we've got women's rugby world cup we've got the commonwealth games we've got sevens there's just so much uh that's coming up and women's you know so the back of the hundred with the cricket and then netball starting again next year so i do feel we're in a really good place um in terms of women's coverage and funding and all those different things changing so mm-hmm. yeah well we talk about women on boards and governance and all those things evolving and changing too so yes yeah, so i'm really excited uh excited for, for birmingham for the commonwealth games i think that will be great for so many sports uh, women's sports uh, as well as men's sports clearly too um, but I think uh, yeah it's exciting exciting few months ahead oh you're such a positive person that's really nice so, <laughs> it, so um, it seems as though for you it feels like it's all just going upwards is that right that the, everything is moving in the right direction do feel so. I mean, we need to be uh, obviously aware of the negativity and clearly COVID and the pandemic and there's less funding. And, you know, there was a huge worry that it would be so negative for women's sport. And there's no doubt it was. It, women's sport stopped quicker. It, it, it didn't have the chance to play in the way that men's sport did. But at least mm-hmm. we had those conversations and it was called out and people voiced concern and things have, ch- have been put in place to ensure that wouldn't happen in the future. So I do think there's no doubt that the money isn't in sport in the way that it was maybe a year ago because of you know lack of funding in so many different areas and, and a lot of that does filter into the women's game because men's has been the more established uh but as i say i think we're having those conversations the fact that we're uh out here you know i'm here talking to you now but it does feel like uh as collective voices people are, are won't let it kind of sink back to where it was before it feels like we're in, moving in the right direction oh good it's nice to hear it's a bit of a relief um, <laughs> Are you heading out for a swim in the next 24 hours? We will actually. What day will be today? We're, uh, we're Wednesday. Wednesday no? yeah. Yeah, Thursday. Thursday evening. So oh. I'll be swimming tomorrow. Yeah, in the lake. Lovely. In the lake. Oh, lovely. Well, have a lovely swim. And thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. I told you she was inspiring. Do check out Sue's book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport, available in all good bookshops now. It's a game changer. This podcast was recorded over Zoom. The editor and composer was David Newman. Please hit like and subscribe. That way you won't miss the next episode. Podcast listeners can claim the best discount we have for membership to Women's Running, which is 35% off. That's less than two ninety five a month. Go to shop womensrunning.co.uk and enter WRPOD at the checkout for your discount. Happy running!
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm hmm. 